But today we find ourselves in 1 Peter chapter 3. We're going to be looking at verses 1 through 6. But before I read those verses to you and, and press through from the beginning to the end of those verses, I just want to say how fascinating it is to do a simple Google search on the topic of strong women and, uh, and, 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 and narrow it down to just the last decade. Now, this is asking the world to vote on this, okay? And you get the results there. And in many of these situations, and many, with many of these names, I can sure understand them being viewed as women of strength. For example, that search over the past decade uh, brought up such names as Angela Merkel, the, the former chancellor of Germany. Here in our own country, Janet Yellen, Hillary Clinton, Michelle Obama, and Kamala Harris. It lists entrepreneurs' names, uh, the wives that carry the, the last name of, of Gates and Jobs. They are, in some cases, billionaires in, in job situation. The last name Prada shows up. Uh, the name Oprah Winfrey. Mary Barra, who's the CEO of General Motors. Abigail Johnson, who's the president and CEO of Fidelity Investments. These are names that in the past decade, and even currently, are in the top portion of these lists of strong females. In the world of entertainment, the names that continue to surface again, Oprah, Angelina Jolie, and Ellen DeGeneres. And, but there's one name that caught my attention for a couple of reasons, first of which, I don't know how to pronounce it, but she lives in Canada, and secondly, it's what she accomplished. The name is Leah Grimanis. Um, she's the founder of uh, the uh, organization Up With Women. And Leah broke the Guinness World Records for, and I didn't know this was a category, the heaviest vehicle pulled 100 feet, 100 feet by a woman. Did you know that was an event? You say, well, what's up with Leah? I don't know her and her organization I don't know anything about, but I know this that she broke the record, Leah pulled a 17,000-pound transport truck 100 feet to raise awareness for her, her cause and, and, and what she's passionate about. A 17,000-pound transport truck. I don't even know what a transport truck is, but it sounds big. 100 feet. I'd say that's a strong woman. And we could go through these and other names and agree that these women have made um, quite an accomplishment for their name and for the cause of women. We won't deny that. We might not agree with them on everything, but we can't deny they're leaving a deep footprint. But every once in a while, it's just refreshing to not look around through Google at our culture for an answer to this question. It's refreshing to look down and to reboot from the pages of Scripture and ask Scripture, not Google, what is a woman of strength? What is a woman of strength? You see, the world paints a strong woman with strokes of wealth, strokes of liberation, strokes of sexuality, strokes of career, strokes of power, strokes of market share, strokes of skin color, strokes of lights, strokes of egalitarianism. 
That's how the world paints the picture of the strong woman, but not Scripture, not God. God paints a strong woman, even a strong wife, with strokes of grace. That's where the strength lies. Strokes of grace. And our text this morning, 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 1-6, through 6, is one of the clearest portraits that God paints of what a strong woman looks like. I find it interesting that if this is one of the clearest portraits of a woman of strength, God paints this picture against the backdrop of the worst of times, humanly speaking. He paints the picture of the strength of a woman against the backdrop of persecution. Because that's where the grace, that's where the strength will show the most. And I'm just impressed to study with you this morning the true beauty of a strong woman. And it's never more pronounced against, than against a, back, a background that's dark. And as we come to 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 1-6, through 6, we see that Peter points at this woman. This woman of strength. This woman of grace. He points out her and lays out the strength of a godly wife with five descriptions. He'll describe her from five different angles. And I want you to just jot these down in your notes if you have a pen and you have the notes. First of all, what does Peter point at? He says, look at that woman over there. That woman of strength, that woman of grace. And note, first of all, she is clear in her identity. She is absolutely clear in her identity. She knows who she is. She doesn't wake up and wonder each morning, who am I, why am I here, and where am I going? She's got it all figured out every morning. She's clear on her identity. Look at chapter 3, verse 1. In the same way, you wives, be submissive to your own husbands. I mean, I'm, I'm barely into chapter 3 and I'm already being controversial just reading those words. In the same way means we're, we're continuing with what Peter's been writing about in chapter 2 and that's our submission to government, a godless government, our submission in the workplace to a godless culture and people who hold the values of a godless culture. And then he breaks for a moment and he gives us the example of Jesus in verses 21 to 25 as the ultimate example. And then he's going back into play now and, and he's continuing on with the next category and it's addressed directly to the wives. Now you need to remember a few things about epistles. These epistles were written and transported over uh, long distances to arrive at pockets of believers and churches in other regions. And when these letters were delivered, they were read publicly and they were passed around and even were New Testament, sometimes different churches would swap letters so they could study the other letters as well. So what we're reading here and taking a paragraph at a time in our study was read in one sitting. And I think that's important for us to remember, especially the ladies, the women. Because how does Peter start this letter? He starts it by showing um, not just the readers in general, but eventually when we get to chapter 3, verse 1, the wives in particular, who they are. He's calling them right here. He's saying, wives, listen to what's going on here. 
listen to what I'm writing to you. This gal that is in Peter's mind in the churches like theirs and ours is a person who knows several realities. She knows who she is. Her gospel identity is set. Because, as we go back to 1 Peter chapter 1, we see that she knows her future is secured because of the gospel. Remember verse 2? According to the foreknowledge of God the Father, by the sanctifying work of the Spirit, you obey Jesus Christ and you're sprinkled with His blood. May grace and peace be yours in fullest measure. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to His great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to obtain an inheritance which is imperishable and undefiled and it will not fade away. It's reserved in heaven for you. It'll be there when you get there. He's writing that to the whole church, but put yourself in that church of the original readers. And you're a wife. You're reading those words and owning them. You're saying... This is, this is for all of us in this body of believers, men and women. We fully participate in this amazing, saving power of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And it's not only delivered us from the penalty of our sin, but it has secured for us a place in heaven. And it's God who initiated this all along. And the wives would be hearing Peter write, read, that God chose before time to set his love on her. She knew who she was. She had a secured future. But then we could just, as an example, go deeper into chapter 1 and verses 13 through 16. And she understands, the woman of 1 Peter 3 understands from chapter 1 that she has a persistent hope that fuels a holy life, a distinct life, even in a culture of persecution. Look at verse 13 of chapter 1. Remember this? Therefore, can I read it this way? Wives... Prepare your minds for action. Keep sober in spirit. Fix your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the former lust which were yours in your ignorance, but like the Holy One who called you, be holy yourselves in all your behavior, because it's written, you shall be holy for I'm holy. Just stop reading there. These wives from chapter 3 knew that they had a secured future because of the salvation that the Father accomplished for them. They also know that they have an assignment. Uh, They have this new life from God coursing through them, and the assignment is to, to live a life of holiness even in persecution. So she knew, she knows in chapter 3, verse 1, this lady knows she has a secured future. She knows that she is enabled to pursue a path of holiness. And as hard as it may get, living that life of holiness that flows out of a changed life, she has the example of Jesus to fall back on when it gets too difficult. And that's what we studied in chapter 2, verses 21 to 25. Particularly, look at verse 21. You've been called for this purpose since Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example for you to follow in His steps who committed no sin, nor was any deceit found in his mouth. And while being reviled, he did not revile in return. While suffering, he uttered no threats, but kept entrusting himself to him 
who judges righteously. Let me tell you something about this lady in chapter 3, verse 1. She knows who she is. She's saved. And this, this definite, coming, full expression of her salvation, of being in the presence of the Lord, is hers, and it compels her to live a holy life. And when that brings further persecution, she has the example of Jesus to look at. She never doesn't have the example of Jesus to look at. It's right in front of her all the time. In the good times and in the difficult times. She knows who she is. And listen, this is what she carries now into every scenario. Whether it's being under a godless government, whether it is being in a godless cultural workplace under authorities, and as we're going to see in this passage, it even follows her into her home if she is married to a godless man. You wives, by this point, you wives, he's getting real particular here, very specific. She knows who she is. She's clear in her identity. But under number one, she not only knows who she is, she knows what she does in this context of the home. She knows what she does, and I want to take you back to the opening words of this chapter again. In the same way, you wives, here it comes, are you ready? Be submissive to your own husband. And we can all be thankful that it just says your own husband, not all the husbands, right? But let's just go ahead and take a, a very candid look again at what it means for a wife to be submissive to her husband. We know this is a, a clear teaching of Scripture. I'd like for you to write a few passages down as I read them. Ephesians 5, verse 22. Remember this? Wives, be subject to your own husbands, as to the Lord. Colossians chapter 3, verse 18. Remember this verse? Wives, be subject to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Remember Titus chapter 2, verses 4 and 5. Listen to these verses. So that they, or I'll go back to verse 3, older women likewise are to be reverent in their behavior, not malicious gossips, nor enslaved to much wine, teaching what is good, and listen to this, so that they may encourage the young women to love their husbands, to love their children, to be sensible, pure, workers at home, kind, being subject to their own husbands, so that the word of God will not be dishonored. You add to that um, 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 3, which says that uh, the, the husband is the head of the wife, Jesus is the head of the husband, and God is the head of Christ. That's 1 Corinthians 11, verse 3. You didn't need me to read those verses to you just now. If you've been, in, been a Christian any, any time at all, you, you know those verses. And here we are again in 1 Peter 3. In the same way, you wives be submissive to your own husbands. Can I, can I just be really clear on a few things here? When you read these passages as a, as a preacher, you, you either pucker or duck. Someone's going to swing at you, or someone's going to give you a big hug. Let me be real clear from the start of what this is not. 
What is this prescribed biblical submission of a wife to a husband in a home? What is this not? It is not the wife being a doormat. Actually, if you treat your wife as a doormat, you are breaking so many uh, biblical principles, starting with the, um, the image bearer that your wife is of God. Such as ignoring the compliment that the Creator has, has woven into her very fabric to complete you. We are very weak and wanting. It's not being a doormat. Secondly, it's not being your servant that you can say, make my sandwich. Snap my fingers. I want my iced tea. It's Monday. We're watching football. It's my TV. It's not her being a doormat or your servant, and it's not her being a mere accessory in your life. Whatever God's saying about submission in both Testaments, it has everything to do with order in God's creation. It has everything to do with a complementary fitting to each other to make one. Where weaknesses and strengths come together to make a power of one that's formidable in the home. That's what submission is. It has nothing to do with the worthiness of the husband. And it has nothing to do with anything that makes the wife less dignified in any way. Am I clear on that? Okay, that's, let's talk about then what it is. I want you to recall again that, that, that Peter here has been talking about the government. He's been talking about the workplace, giving us these, these principles of submission. He's going to use the same word for submit that he's using in chapter 3, verse 1. He's using it to start chapter or chapter 2, verse 13. Same Greek word, hupotasso. And he's going to use it again with the workplace environment in verse 18. Same word he's using in chapter 3, verse 1. There's a trajectory he's building out here. And I just want to remind you too that Jesus himself is told to have submitted to his Father's plan and even in the passage that we studied last time in chapter 2, verses 21 to 25, Jesus, when he was reviled, didn't revile in return. You read the white space between the letters there. He could have called all those angels to wipe them out, and he didn't. There was a, an alarming submission of Jesus in his suffering. An alarming submission. But what was behind that with Jesus was he less dignified? Was he less powerful? Did he lack strength? Absolutely not. It was actually his dignity and his strength that allowed him to persevere and accomplish the bigger issue of verse 24 in chapter 2. He, he himself bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness for by his wounds you are healed. Jesus is quite an example. Jesus is the one who will say in, in, uh, in the Gospel of Matthew chapter 11, take my yoke upon you and learn of me for I am meek. We'll say more about that in just a moment. And what Christ's example in the, at the end of chapter 2 provides is hope for the wife 
actually, it's as if he says, I'm going to cover the two big obvious issues first in your persecution, government and then the workplace and the culture. But let's pause after I do that one because the third one's coming and this is where it gets hard because you're moving from the public arena to the, to the intimacy of the home. And it's there that he pauses and draws our attention to Jesus as he encourages these wives. I agree with the Zondervan NIV study Bible note which says, Peter dignifies women by directly addressing wives and acknowledging them as free moral agents. Yes, he's dignifying them here. He's dignifying them because God does. In Genesis 1.28, they are image bearers of God and we're both given dominion in creation. Though there will be structure of headship within that relationship. He's dignifying them because even Paul agrees in Galatians 3.28, there's neither Jew nor Greek, neither slave nor free man, there is neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. What Peter is doing is he is saying here at the beginning of chapter 3 and in verse 1, wives, arrange yourselves under your husband as an area of strength and completion. And understand this, that submission ultimately is not to your husband. Your submission in doing this is submission to God, listen, through your husband. Same goes true for government. I mean, I I can submit to government, but ultimately I'm not submitting to government. I'm submitting to God through the government. Or through a difficult employer, I'm submitting to God through a difficult employer. And Peter now brings that same helpful reasoning to the topic of the home and marriage. The husband is not an obstacle to living this out in the home. The husband is the most pressing opportunity to live out her identity as a gospel woman of grace. So Peter points at her at the beginning of verse 1, right from the start, and he says she is clear in her identity. But he, he says keep looking at her. though. I want you to note something else about her. Number two, she is ready for any scenario. She is ready for any scenario. Look at verse 1 again. In the same way, you wives, be submissive to your own husbands so that even if any of them are disobedient to the word, they may be won without a word by the behavior of their wives as they observe your chaste or your pure and respectful behavior. You can translate that last phrase your pure and your fearing behavior. The Greek word phobos. We get our word phobia from that. We're going to talk about that. She is ready for any scenario because she knows wherever she finds herself in whatever moments, even in the home with an unsaved husband, she, she knows, first of all, that she has two possibilities. Two possibilities. Say, so what do you mean by that? Well, what, the, what is the reader thinking as they hear this read? For the first time as believers, they received this from Peter. It's a phrase here that would capture our attentions. It says, to her own husband, so that even if any of them are disobedient to the word. We need to ask the question, who is this? Is this a believer who's not doing what God told them to do? Or is this an unbeliever? 
And again, we don't have to press too hard on this. Peter's going to answer it for us. Listen from Peter's pen how he links obedience with being saved. In chapter 1, verse 2, it says that those who are saved are saved, and he writes, to obey Jesus Christ and be sprinkled with His blood. I remember talking in that verse with you as we were studying it that the Gospel offer of eternal life is not a suggestion, it's a command to obey. We can go into chapter 1, verse 14, speaking to those who are saved, what are they now? He calls them obedient children. We can come to chapter 2, verses 7 and 8, where we've read previously. Um, It says, uh, this precious value then is for you who believe, but for those who disbelieve, that's a key word, the stone which the builders rejected, this became the very cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. For they stumble because of their because they are disobedient to the word. Twice, it's referring to unbelievers as those who are disobedient to the gospel. The word here in this context is the gospel. And even in chapter 4, verse 17, for it's time for judgment to begin with the household of God, and if it begins with us first, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God. There's no doubt in my mind that what Peter's addressing in 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 1-6, through 6, is an unsaved husband. I think we'd agree that that would be the worst case scenario. Right? And we want our husbands, well, I don't have a husband, but you know what I mean. Uh, we want our Christian husbands and our gathering here to go to heaven. We're excited for them that they're saved because they're going to heaven. If one of them wasn't saved, we'd be very burdened for that. So I think it's, uh, it's safe to say that this is worst-case scenario. Peter's reaching for the worst-case scenario, saying, okay, so let's say you have an unsaved, disobedient to the gospel husband. What's your plan? Now, step back for a moment. If Peter's reaching for the worst-case scenario, and I think he is with those, words, those two words, even if, then isn't it true that the truth that's in this paragraph will be equally and powerfully applicable to anything less than the ultimate? In other words, if a solid believer struggles with sin for a season, will this apply to him? Yeah, it applies to the worst case scenario and anything less worse. If it's a person who claims to be a Christian and and is going through long seasons of disobedience, acting more like a pagan, is now we wonder if they are a Christian or if they aren't, God knows the heart. Will this passage be sufficient for that one? Yes, because it's sufficient for the worst case scenario of an actual unbeliever where there's no doubt. She knows that she only has two possibilities. Peter's either writing about unbeliever or believer, but understand this instruction will easily apply to both to bring them to repentance. You see, she knows that there's only two possibilities, but she also knows she only has one mission. And her mission, if she finds herself married to an unbeliever in the worst case scenario, and anything less, a disobedient Christian husband, her irrefutable mission 
is to display in that home, in that marriage, their irrefutable reality of her heavenly citizenship. That's her goal. Her goal is not to preach at her husband. Over and over and over. Her goal is not to nag her husband or to intimidate her husband or to manipulate her husband or to withdraw from her husband, isolate from her husband, or to spin into a spiritual depression. That's not her mission. Her mission is clear from the Lord. As a matter of fact, remember what we read in chapter 2, verse 12, that for the unsaved, that we are living out our faith in front of, especially our persecutors, there's a day of visitation coming, chapter 2, verse 12. And what is that? We decided uh, that Peter was talking about as we interpreted the, the context, that he's saying there's a day coming when those unbelievers may trust in Christ because of our examples as believers. The, the same gospel that visited you will come for them. And they'll point at you as the reason that they believed. She's on one mission. And it's to win her husband. Paul write, or Peter writes here that they may be one without a word. That word one is a, is a common Greek word of business, of commerce. It means to turn a profit. It means to close the sale. It means to win in the moment of presentation. And Paul's reaching for that, or Peter's reaching for that word, as Paul does too, in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verses 19 through 22, where Paul says, I become all things to all men that I may win some. She's on a rescue mission for her husband. St. Augustine has his words preserved by several commentators on this point. It's his testimony worded in a prayer to God for what he grew up watching between his saved mom and for most of for most of his early life his unsaved dad these are the words of saint augustine she served her husband as her master and did all she could to win him for you lord speaking to you to him of you by her conduct by which you lord made her beautiful. And finally, Lord, when her husband was at the end of his earthly span, she had gained him for you. He came to Christ. You see, those who are godless that get in our our paths each day, whether it's out there or whether it's in the home, they might want to try to debate nouns and verbs and positions and politics and right and wrong But there's one thing they can't debate. And that is you cannot debate the countenance and behavior of grace. It's too strong for you. I don't know, maybe you're listening to the sermon this morning. And uh, you've been kicking against a conviction in your own life. I'm talking to you of whether you're saved or unsaved, husband. Or any of you. You've been making life difficult for those in your life dearest to you, maybe even your spouse, because of the intensity of their faith or how they're just leaning into their faith and given the opportunity they would just blossom if you would lighten your thumb. You can't deny what you're seeing. It's like the more I press down on her or on him, the more grace comes out. It's disarming 
It's dismantling. It's real. Well, guess what? Today can be your day of visitation. Stop fighting it. It's real what's coming out of her or him in your life. And for some reason, God in his kindness has let you draw your first breath this morning and get up yet again. He's allowed you to be roused out of your sleep in your claustrophobic kingdom of one. To hear the good news one more time from this pulpit and from these songs, but also to see it one more day from your family members. Perhaps God's going to open your eyes to see your sin, to see the truth of the gospel at work in your, your family member's life and give you faith and repentance to believe it. Stop fighting it. Our Lord said to Paul, the Apostle Paul, or Saul, before he was the Apostle, it's hard for you to kick against the goads. Stop and come. Well, Peter continues to point at her. And he says, I have some, a third thing I want you to see in this woman of strength, this woman of grace. And it's this, she is stubborn. She is stubborn in her priorities. She is stubborn in her priorities. Look at verses 3 and 4. Speaking to the wives, your adornment must not be merely external, braiding the hair and wearing gold jewelry or putting on dresses, but let it be the hidden person of the heart. The hidden person of the heart. You see, as I understand it, as I study this, this, uh, this culture and, and this text of Scripture and what was going on, in the, especially the Gentile lands where these Jewish and Gentile Christians were living and being persecuted in, as the gospel would come to town, it would explode and lives would be changed. But sometimes a wife might accept Christ and a husband wouldn't. Or as we see in Corinth, the husband accept Christ and the, the wife didn't. Peter knew that in especially the Gentile realm that a wife would not want to be severed from the affections of her husband even if she was saved and even if he wasn't because of the security, because of her, her affections and the story they have written up to this point. And there was a pressure on newly saved wives then, just like now, Thoughts like this, in order to keep my husband, I must become the culture that has captured his eye. And I don't want him to be dissatisfied with me and start looking elsewhere, so I'm going to become that on the outside, and I'm going to work hard, so he'll keep looking my direction even though I'm a Christian. That's operating out of fear. But not this lady that Peter's writing about, she is stubborn in her priorities. See, what do you mean? Well, first of all, she understands that the external is merely a covering. It's not the substance of who you are. It's not saying you can't do things with your hair. It's not saying you can't wear jewelry, or also, also means you, we can't wear clothes, and he's not going there. He's saying the substance of who you are is not summed up with what you see in the world that might be attracting your, your spouse. It's much deeper than that. It's, 
It's not an issue, as we would say, of Macy's or makeup or social media where you have to constantly sell your brand. You have to constantly remake your image in the sight of others, either with covering or with keystrokes. He says your adornment here, this is our word cosmos. It means we get our word cosmetics from it. It's very thoughtful, it's very planned out, and it's very anti-chaos. It's very, it's very intentional, every part of it. Just don't live for that. That's fatiguing. And it's fake. She knows and she's stubborn that the external is merely covering. It's not the substance. But she's also stubborn about this. She's stubborn about the fact that the heart must be her daily focus. Not the external. The heart. As Proverbs 4.23 says, Guard your heart. For out of your heart comes all the issues of life. Your heart is the birthplace of heavenly citizenship. Look at verse 23. Proverbs, I'm sorry, not verse 23. That was Proverbs 4.23. I want you to read this, this verse again. Verse 4. Let it be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable quality of a gentle and quiet spirit. Imperishable is the same word we saw back in chapter 1, verse 4. Speaking of your eternal inheritance, that's imperishable. Just like you were impressed in chapter 1, verse 4 about how settled your inheritance is in heaven, he's writing to the women saying, when you live out of your heart, not for merely the exterior, out of fear, that's something that will never fade away, just like your inheritance in heaven. It's that valuable, that precious. He says the quality of a, a gentle and quiet spirit, which is precious in the sight of God. That word gentle, we've seen that word a lot in the New Testament. It's the word from which we get, it's a Greek word that means meek. It's a word that means you can be strong. As a matter of fact, the 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 assumption is that there is great strength in the person that's being addressed about being meek. There's great strength that is bridled for a cause bigger than yourself. Here again, Peter is dignifying these ladies by acknowledging you have, as gospel women, great, tremendous dignity and strength. Harness it for the salvation of your husband and the spread of the gospel. And by the way, it's one of the fruit of the Spirit. Meekness, same Greek word. You have what you need. So stop, Peter's saying, if he, if he was writing up bumper stickers, don't print in the mirror for too many hours in the morning unless it's the mirror of the Word of God that we read of in James chapter 1. You, need, you say, well, do I struggle with this? Well, the litmus test is how much time and resources do you invest on your clothes, on your brand of who you are, of your posturing for social media, and of your jewelry? How much time do you spend? How many resources do you invest? She's stubborn about this. She's, she doesn't give any ground on this one. 
She doesn't live as if the external is her daily focus and the heart is really not the substance. No, she's got clarity on this. The external is only a covering. The heart is the focus. Sometimes it's good to be a stubborn wife. God calls it beautiful. And, and that brings us to the fourth thing Peter points out as he, looks, as he wants us to look at this lady. Number four, she is content with God's pleasure. She is content with God's pleasure. Again, go back to verse three at the end. Uh, verse four, excuse me. Let it be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable quality of a gentle and quiet spirit, and here's the phrase, which is precious in the sight of God. God looks on, or man looks on the outward, God looks at the heart. Remember those words in 1 Samuel chapter 16, verse 7, when Saul was being rejected and David was being chosen? So that, that captures my mind. This concept of, oh, whoa, hold it. You mean God's in that living room with this couple? Because what Peter's prescribing means God's seeing. God is, it's precious in the sight of God. I mean, he's there. He's there when, when you're being misunderstood. He's there when you're being ignored or marginalized. He's there when your Lord is being attacked verbally. As he attacks you and your faith. Yeah, God's there. He's not just checking in on you. He's never not there. And suddenly, when I see this is being acted out in, in the sight of God, well, that sounds to me like what the Scripture teaches as the fear of the Lord. The fear of the Lord is an awareness of God's presence in my moments. And it has an effect on me. One of, of reverence, but also one of joy and contentment. Not just the hope that God might be here now in these moments, it's the, it's the conviction that He's fully here. He's never not with you. And now I'm starting to see some, th- some things Peter's been dropping all along the way here. If we're talking about the fear of the Lord at the end of verse 4, and I believe we are, well, Peter's been doing much talk about fear. In chapter 3, earlier we saw... Um, I'm sorry, chapter 1, verse 17. Go all the way back there. If you address as father the one who impartially judges according to each one's work, conduct yourselves in fear, fabas, during the time of your stay on earth. We saw in verse 2, this is where it was, chapter 3, verse 2, that word respectful is the same, it's on, it has the same root word, fabas. It's fear. He is talking fully about an awareness of the Lord's presence in the most darkest of moments in the privacy of the home. God is fully there. Man, does that ever change how you absorb those moments. We, we were scammed. I don't know how, what happened. Someone, someone got a hold of the number of my debit card. This is about a year and a half ago. And they went... To the, this is the, now I, I know the details. In hindsight, they went, they took my debit card information and went to the Nike website and ordered five hundred dollars worth of shoes. And uh, they had it delivered to my house. And they were tracking it. And as soon as it hit my porch, they came up and got it and went away. 
Now, LifeLock took care of me. Credit card company's good, too. But I was upset. I felt a little vulnerable, man. And I was like, first of all, I wouldn't spend that kind of money on Nike. <laughs> but uh, Buck Knives, maybe, but not Nike. That's stupid. But you know what? I had to, I had to figure out something, because besides getting a new card, I had to figure out what else we were going to do. So I got one of those ring alarm system doorbell things. I love it, man. I have fun with my grandkids with that thing. And I went ahead and equipped the whole house, and, and uh, we're all set. Don't break into my house, because if I'm not home to come get you, you're going to get gotten still. But what does a doorbell, the ring doorbell camera do? Well, it, if, if, I'm, if I'm down in Toledo on a trip, and someone rings my doorbell, I can on my phone, look at them, and talk to them. They don't know if I'm in the house or if I'm in Toledo. But all they know is it seems like you're out here with me. And if, if I don't like what they're doing, I can set my house alarm off from Toledo at a touch of the screen. I, I like that. That's kind of fun. Um, but it's still not the same. As helpful as it is, it's not, as same, not the same as if someone's nefarious on my front porch and they, I could talk to them through my doorbell. I can see them through the doorbell. But it's quite another thing for me to still open the door and step on the porch with them. It's one thing to know about the fear of the Lord, especially if you're in a difficult situation, but it's quite another thing to realize that he's present with you and there's something that's precious in his sight. And it's you exuding the grace of the gospel when you're mistreated, even in the home. You see, this strong wife in 1 Peter 3, she sees what her husband can't see. This strong wife has an extension cord hooked up directly to an awareness of God's presence. Sinclair Ferguson writes these words, the fear of the Lord tends to take away all our other fears. This is the secret of Christian courage and boldness. This gal, Peter says, she's dropped her anchor, which goes out of sight into the water, but it holds her steady. But Peter says, yeah, there's still one more thing, though. You can't miss this. And he points at her and says, number five, she is contributing to a legacy. She is contributing to a legacy. It's interesting and important for us to note, and we have to have this conversation not just in front of the world, but even with the other parts of the evangelical church, that submission is not something that's limited to a particular time or culture or society. We're here in 2023 studying an epistle that was written uh, in the first hundred years. So does that apply to us, or is it just that culture? Well, what Peter's going to do in verses 5 and 6 is he's going to take his readers back several centuries, more than he's having to come forward for us. Look at verse 5. For in this way, in former times, the holy women also, who hoped in God, used to adorn themselves, being submissive to their own husbands, just as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord, and you have become her children if you do what is right without being frightened by any fear. I mean, he's appealing, he's taking his Gentile and Jewish readers all the way back to the, the beginning of the Jewish nation, Abraham's wife, as an example. He's crossed all those societies and cultures and centuries, and he's saying it was still in play back then too comes right from the creation week. 
Now, it's interesting to go through Genesis and try to find an example because there's, there twice in Genesis chapter 12 and in Genesis chapter 20, Abraham's making some weird decisions that are putting Sarah at risk. And she's at, a, at his side. But most commentators believe what Pete, what's on Peter's mind here is Genesis 18 verse 12 where Abraham and Sarah are being visited by heavenly visitors to announce the coming birth of a son. And in chapter 18, verse 12, we read these words, Sarah laughed to who? To herself. I mean, this is a, we are privy to a conversation Sarah's having with Sarah without, without an audience. Sarah laughed to herself saying, after I have become old, shall I have pleasure, my Lord being old also. These are her thoughts with her thoughts. And her instinct, it's a, there's a sweetness to it and a strength that she was still enjoying the safety of the order of the home that God had put there. Abraham, her head, and she, his completer. And boy, did he need her completion. But her instinct was referred to him as her head, her Lord. You say, well, that makes you vulnerable. It does. It does. That's why Peter ends verse 6 with these words. If you do what's right without being frightened by any fear. Literally, it's not fearing any terror. The Legacy Standard Bible translates it this way, not fearing any intimidation. You get the, you get the point. There is a vulnerability and the necessity of faith whenever you have to submit. And remember, you only have to submit when there's disagreement. Otherwise, if there's agreement, there's no need for submission. So whether it's to government, or whether it's to the workplace in this culture, or whether even in the home to an unsaved spouse, it's going to create vulnerability, and there will be the necessity of trust. One commentator puts it this way, their submissive trust in the living God will keep them from undue apprehension. Some believe that Peter here is actually quoting and alluding to Proverbs 3, verses 25 to 26. Listen to these words. Do not be afraid of sudden fear, nor of the onslaught of the wicked when it comes. For the Lord will be your confidence and will keep your foot from being caught. So, Sarah's story all those centuries before Peter, her story is being told to Peter's readers. And Peter's readers, these wives, their stories being told to you this morning to maybe keep you going. Well, 1 Corinthians 10.13 says, if you're in a difficult home, this is common to man. Guess what? Someone down the road will get to hear your story of strength and grace. True beauty is only pronounced against a dark background. I could tell you the story of my fr friends, a couple that are dear to me and my wife, Bill and Marilyn, in Virginia Beach. Bill's not a believer. Um, Bill's probably closing in on 70. 
I got to know Bill, though, because he and his wife are so tight. <laughs> it's a sweet couple. She's a strong believer, came to Christ. They have a son and a daughter. Uh, they're believers in Christ. But Bill's held out. Bill's had a successful business career. He's retired now. But everyone knows he's not a believer in Christ. And whenever his wife is able to bring him around Christians, we love the guy. Genuinely do. This thing's been going on like this for decades. And they're tied together with a tight knot as a couple. There's been slight movements and conversations with Bill through the decades, but it's still an unfinished story. He's still alive, and he's still unsaved. But Marilyn's heavenly glow is absolutely stunning to him and to the children and to the local church. That's Marilyn's story. What's your story? May you understand what it means to be strong in grace. Lord, thank you again for this time. Thank you for allowing us to listen in with the original listeners that Peter's writing to. Thank you for letting us see Sarah again. Uh, thankful for reminding us we're not alone in our suffering, especially as, as disciples of Jesus. And I pray that even though this passage is directed at wives, and we understand the husband chapter is ne- or the ha- the husband material is next Sunday morning. What we're learning from these wives impacts all of us, men and women. As a matter of fact, some argue, Lord, that verses one through six is written to the husbands too, so that they can see and feel and read how vulnerable these wives are, and why they need godly protection. And so, Lord, I pray all of us will go sobered out from this sermon and into our day and and bring us back at 5 o'clock when we continue to talk about the same topic. Use us, Lord, to encourage others and, Lord, keep us in the game as well. Thank you for the strength of grace. In Jesus' name we pray.